This is Greg Rosner, and welcome to the Presentation Gym. What we've got here is failure to communicate. You must strive to find your own voice. But the longer you wait to begin, the less likely you are to find it at all. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. You're a non-believer. Why should we waste time on Kabuki? I don't know what that means. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I am so psyched to be interviewing Aaron Tucker in just a few minutes. But first, I want to take a few minutes to just share with you this guy's background. Oh my God. All right. So Aaron has been a Navy SEAL. He's actually a decorated Navy SEAL with 17 years Naval Special Warfare operations, specializing in human intelligence, communications. He's had multiple combat deployments in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. He's had those operations in more than, I think, seven countries that he can talk about. Uh, He's been a SEAL instructor. He's been part of something called the Joint Terminal Attach Controller. He's trained on advanced special operations techniques. He's conducted battlefield interrogation. He's been a range officer, a safety officer, a dive supervisor, a free fall and static line parachutist and instructor. Just reading here, he, as an instructor, he has mentored and trained numerous foreign forces, as well as Navy, Army, and others in various special operations tasks and roles. He left the military since leaving. He has worked in the defense industry, developing Department of Defense strategies and counterinsurgency and other classified programs that <laughs> maybe we can ask him about. Um, After the Navy, Aaron built Joint Chief of Staff Special Programs. Aaron developed a global logistics and training compliancy program throughout 75 countries. Unbelievable. He holds a Bachelor in Marketing, an MBA from the St. Leo University Donald R. Tapia School of Business, and a graduate certificate from UVA Darden School. So Aaron is now an executive consultant for Afterburner, and we'll hear more about that in the interview. He's concurrently pursuing MS Management Strategy and Leadership from Eli Broad School of Business. I am so psyched for this interview. Let me just kick this off and just say um, I am just blown away by your service and your experience. I read through your bio, and I recorded the introduction for this podcast. Um, And so, you know, I'm writing a book about the future presentations and turning your presentation into a conversation. And the purpose of this interview is really to get your advice on the topic and learn from your experience. So let's kick it off. So tell me, tell us about your service in the military, starting there, uh, and where presentations were part of the job and why they were important, what made some good, some bad, some ugly. Okay, I would say, uh, so uh, at this point, I'm 17 years as a SEAL um, in the Navy, uh, but the first 12 was active duty. After that, I've been in the reserves for, uh, I guess, going on five years now, almost six. Um, so obviously deployed all over the place. Uh, and to be honest, we brief, or we do presentations, uh, I should say, for pretty much everything that we do. 
Um, so every operation that we execute, um, every movement we would do, whether it's on foot or in vehicles, uh, especially is training. Um, so every training, we call them evolutions, but every, every activity that we would do, everything was briefed. Uh, we had very standardized briefing methodology and models. Uh, you know, it differed whether we were doing a, a training exercise or we were conducting a real world mission or if we were basically just getting on a C-130 to fly somewhere. Um, so we brief everything. Uh, and again, the methodologies are, uh, will vary, uh, the standards that we have for each, but, uh, it's probably one, I'd say one of the more important things that we do, uh, within the military and, and as, as well post military work, uh, in corporate America, so to speak, uh, to, to create an alignment to make sure everybody's just working on the same picture, the same sheet of music. Um, so there's no questions as to what is going to happen or how an operation will be conducted. Uh, so the importance, I would say, it was probably one of the more important things that we did uh, within the military just to ensure that uh, we had alignment within our, our, our team, basically. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the question that I have here then is about that alignment. So you, I'm just picturing as you're talking here that you're having these mission briefings and you're saying, okay, guys – um, this is what the plan is. This is how we're going to, this is how it's all going to go down. And that's like a transmission of information that goes out verbally, maybe with pictures. But how do you know that everybody in the room that you're presenting to actually gets the message and gets the information? How do you confirm understanding? How is that full cycle of transmission and receipt? taking place so so in our world uh typically i would say if i'm working with my uh, with, with my task unit you know at least 25 percent of us in that room in that briefing room were actually part of the plan uh, but as we as we go through our our process um or our, our standard operating procedures we call them uh as we cover each single section you know a lot of times we'll actually shotgun the the information um when you say to, shotgun what's that mean so basically, we'll randomly pick someone out of one of our team members and say, you know, hey, hey, Joe, what happens next? And they're literally reading it on a on a board, mind you, or, you know, a PowerPoint presentation or whatever the deck is we're using. Uh, and then they basically tell us what's going to happen. Now, the main reason that I would say uh, everybody understand and we have that alignment is because we work off a very uh, set of specific standard operating procedures or SOPs is what we're, for short. And so what this does is it basically says, here's how we are going to execute this maneuver. Here's how we're going to execute this plan. Um, you know, if we have a contingency, some magical random thing that happens to pop up, hopefully we planned for it in, in a different section of the brief. And here's what we're going to do. Um, so it basically creates a very set standard of movements that everybody's online for. It's very similar within uh, from, from a business side. Yeah. Um, so let's say you work for Goldman Sachs or whatever, and you have to go take this trip. So when you come back and you create your invoice, you know your your cost that that you submit to your company, yeah. it goes through a very set uh, set of procedures uh, in order for you to get reimbursed for your travel, your food, and, and all of that. Yeah. So that's a very simplistic model, but we have the same thing at pretty much everything we do. Almost everything that we do in the military is. is is built around standardization and standards, much, you know, obviously like a presentations that we do. But that's basically how everybody knows their, their very specific job and their roles. Right. So you, you say, okay, here's the plan. 
here's this presentation of all this information. And you, what I'm hearing you say is you kind of, um, you say, hey, Joe, you know, what would we do in, in this situation given this presentation of information? And so you validate, you spot check that Joe has the information, Sam has the information, and other people have the information before you basically uh, say, okay, let's go. Correct. Okay. So, um, so tell me about a time where you've seen some good briefings, some good presentations, some bad. What made a presentation good? What made it bad? What made it ugly? What made it a recipe for success? What made it a recipe for disaster? So I would say uh, the first off, the thing that is going to make a, a presentation or a brief uh, successful is, I'd say, one, uh, knowing your audience, and two, simplicity. Uh, I would say the, the two largest things that I see that make a poor presentation is going to be, one, having way too much stuff behind you that you're presenting to, that all the material, every word that you want to say is basically right behind you. Um, and then the other major one is going to be literally just reading, the, in this case, like a PowerPoint deck or your Prezi, and just verbatim reading everything right off it. Uh, to me, this, this is a recipe for disaster because what you're saying is I don't know the material. Uh, when we do presentations or briefs, the individual who is actually briefing he is the subject matter. He's what everybody should be paying attention to. And the presentation itself is nothing more than a highlight. It's that high-level notes that the presenter is able to speak to because they should have that in-depth knowledge of exactly what's going on. Um, so I think big picture is obviously having a stage presence, so to speak, uh, is, is crucial, one, to be a good presenter. And when you say uh, stage, what is that, in your opinion? When you say um, so I, I think I think we all look at the characteristics of an introvert versus an extrovert. If uh, someone is extremely introverted, uh, they typically do not do well presenting because their one just typical body language is very reserved, very inward, whereas an extrovert is going to be more open, uh, like, for instance, an open chest, uh, coming down to even to the way you step. So if I'm on stage giving a keynote or one of our presentations or seminars, you know, I always keep my toes pointed at the audience or where I'm looking. Uh, because the second I turn my foot in, my whole body rotates with it, and yeah. now they see a shoulder, a silhouette. Uh, and so that's, you know, very, very, probably I don't want to say in a more advanced trick, but that's just something that we learn the more the more we do. Yeah, so uh -huh. just, just about that. So while you may consciously say, okay, I better keep my feet pointed towards the audience, the reality is even if you weren't thinking about that, even if you were just standing in front of a group and you're all in and saying, I am here, what would you like to focus on? and you're kind of all in at that moment, would your feet naturally be pointed towards the audience anyway? Not at first. Uh, for me, not at first. Uh, it took a lot of uh, feedback and review from my coworkers to to develop that uh, that presence. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's, you know, typically when you're talking about something you're briefing, you have passion for it, obviously. There, there's a reason that you're doing it, a reason that you either dislike or, or you're pushing the specific subject. Um, so, I mean, I always try to keep, most of my body uh, presented to an audience, but it's the very little things that you don't think about. Uh, and the flip side of that is if you don't know your material inside and out to where you could literally just yeah. stop, just pick back up, stop, answer a question and, and get right back to the portion you were yeah. or, or able to really present that material without even thinking almost like you're on autopilot, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Um, if you can't do that, then it's the, 
articulating in the movement of your body and, and being able to physically present yourself is a lot more difficult uh, because, you know, we, as a human being, we really can't multitask that well. Yeah. Uh, and so presenting is a huge multitasking uh, capability, being able to think about what you you're saying being able to have you know the audience look looking at the audience, yeah. being able to move back and forth, have a good body position, have a good posture. Yeah. Uh, so if you can't have you know at least the script portion memorized to almost a T, but where you can flow off and on script as needed uh, with with no with no possible effort at all, then having the body and everything else is makes it a lot more difficult. Yeah. So two things that come up. So I want to ask you about introverts. Maybe they're getting a bad rap here. Uh, I'm sure that in the SEAL teams, I mean, I'm not sure. Were there any introverts? Of course. In uh, the SEAL I teams mean, that, that actually knew their shit and yet were able to, because they knew their shit, even though they're introverted, you know, what was the recipe for their success? Um, so we, we obviously had introverts, definitely. Uh, you know, I mean, we are a, a cross-section of the U.S. population, basically, yeah. uh, in, in terms of personalities, demographics, and whatnot. So we, we definitely had introverts. Um, I think for us, uh, we just knew how to deal with each other because we lived with each other. Uh, like, really simple case in point, I could be walking a night vision and see uh, part of my team walking over a hill, and I would know exactly who it was because of the way they were carrying their weapon, their posture, the way they were moving, stepping. Uh, you just know each other inside and out like that. So we develop a culture around each other, so we know how to, to deal with each other. Now, the flip side of that is, well, you know, we're a little bit more alpha as a, as a unit than probably most other organizations as a whole. So if someone was an introvert, the truth is we make them just get over it. Uh, we make them present in front of us. We, we get them used to it, um, and we coach them. We, we build them up to be able to do it. Now, it, it doesn't mean they're going to be the best presenters, but it doesn't mean they're going to be poor either. Uh, right. It's a matter of mentoring and teaching and teaching them how to, how to do everything. But the truth is, yeah, they were as, you know, you go through our training, uh, you, there's an expectation of the quality of operator, uh, ability to do your job. So introvert, extrovert, whatever it was, it, it didn't matter. We always knew that an individual could, as we say, shoot, move, and communicate very well without having any issues. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, introverts, extroverts, I think that's like everyone falls at some you know place along that spectrum. And um, you, you talked about a script. Now, I would think if someone really knows what they're talking about and really is an expert in that in the area that they're presenting in business or in the military, that they could, they should be able to go off script. They should be able to almost start the presentation with what would you like to focus on? This is the plan and go anywhere that needs to be gone. So, I mean, help me understand the, the balance that you think that has to happen in a presentation between on the one side, having a script and saying this, I've got to cover this information. And on the other side, do a more off-the-cuff, okay, we have 15 minutes, there's 10 of us, what do you need to know? No, well, I, I definitely agree. Um, I would say you have to have a script as a baseline, for sure, because uh, you have to have that, that, uh, that commonality, uh, the common model amongst your team to start with, mm -hmm. that uh, you still have to have a, a script of some sort, even if it's just a, 
more of an outline uh, yeah. with the very specific data points, the specific facts that you're going to use to every single uh, member, to every single audience or company uh, in order to relay the very specific message that you're attempting to. However, um, you know, you're going to get those random outlier questions that, that will come up, whether it's in a military presentation or if we're presenting to, you know, Cisco. Uh, so they're still going to be there. It's, but if you're, you know, for us, we're supposed to be subject matter experts of whatever it is that we're presenting. Uh, we should know the information inside and out. You know, we're constantly learning uh, more and more and more to want to keep up with our knowledge base, but as well as to see what our competitors are doing. And that, you know, that's true in the military or outside. So, yeah, uh, at the end of the day, if I'm asked a lot of questions, like if we're going through a Q&A cycle uh, wherever, whether it was in the military answering questions about ISIS or whether I'm working for, you know, a whatever size organization and they're asking about our process model, uh, at the end of the day, I should have all the information. There should be no uh, unexpected questions that will come up. Uh, and so I can usually drive the questions to the left or to the right to get kind of back into the models or the talking points that, that I think need to be brought up. Um, and if it's something completely random, then, yeah, you know, we're professional enough to where we can go almost completely off the cuff, which, uh, which has occurred quite a bit as well uh, in my world. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, we have the knowledge. We know the very specific talking points that we need to, that need to be covered. And so, you know, if they want to go outside of that, uh, hopefully I have the knowledge. If not, I will defer and get back to them and then, you know, push the topic back to where I feel comfortable. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you have got an amazing resume of just experience. I mean, you have, you know, defended this country. You have, you know, been in war zones. And you have, uh, and by the way, thank you immensely for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, so what would you say in the context of presentations and, and the conversations that happen prior to these missions, prior to um, shit going down, so to speak, um, what, what is most surprising to you about, about how important presentations are? Was anything surprising to you or you, you, you know intuitively that if this – conversation about what's going to happen this presentation is not good it isn't clear or whatever uh things are going to go awry so is there anything su was surprising to you about that process uh as you've you've grown in your career i think definitely i would say you know beginning as a, a new sealed member uh on our team um not having sat through you know obviously i didn't do briefs in high school and, and things like that not to the extent that we do so I, I would definitely say some of the largest surprises I had was uh, was the lack of, I want to say lack of understanding, but a lack of, you know, everybody's so, uh, simple example, everybody's in a room, everybody's planning, uh, you know, so we spend four hours, we're planning this assault on a target, um, all right, ready, you know, ready, break, go, we leave for a couple hours, prep our gear, uh, get all the, you know, talk to your family, do what you got to do, and then we come back in for our uh, our brief. And so as the presentation kicks on, uh, it's almost amazing that when some of the questions come up, it's very specific things that we had covered in our planning cycle uh, with the same individuals that were in there. So what it, what it really taught me, well, I think when I talk about alignment, this is really what I mean is, so we get into a room and the same individuals that plan the operation still sometimes are not very specifically aligned on the, uh, the very execution and the actions on target that need to take place. Could you give just a, a, an example, just so I, you know, withhold the names and places to uh, protect the uh, innocent or, 
guilty for that matter. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah no give problem. Us, give me an example so I can really understand what you're talking about. Okay, so we were, uh, uh, this is probably almost a decade ago at this point, so we're overseas. Uh, we're getting ready to conduct a, a raid on a compound. And so we spent four or five hours, uh, you know, planning for this, this operation. And a lot of moving parts from, uh, you know, jet, fighter jets for air cover, helicopters to insert us, to extract us, uh, as well as basically like UAV type uh, assets flying above. So there's a lot of moving parts on top of us. Uh, we're the assaulters, and on top of that, we had a, a conventional army, big army type uh, unit creating this blocking force around us to ensure nothing could escape. So, so we did all of this. We had the key players in the rooms from the air resources, from the ground resources, and we begin uh, the, the briefing session. And as we, so we cover the situation, we get into the mission, the very specific mission objective, no issues there, and we get into the execution, the actions on, so basically the, the what we're going to actually do. And it's very explicit, you know, we have a single point of accountability, we, we drive individual accountability within our planning. And so as we're going through this, people started asking questions. Um, and what it told me was, wow, we're not, not everybody's on the same page on what we're supposed to do on how this raid is going to be conducted. Uh, and so, you know, we basically hashed out all, all the questions, got everything answered, and then started again from the execution point, ran through it, and that was when we made everybody who was the, uh, for what we call them a single point of accountability or, you know, the individual who is ultimately responsible to ensuring that that very specific task on our execution gets done, and we basically call them out and say, you know, hey, hey, Jim, what happens now? Great, Bob, what's next? Billy, what are you doing next? Great, you know. And as we went through the list, it basically ensured that every owner, every, uh, every objective owner knew yeah. exactly what was going to happen. It created the full alignment within the team. We finished the brief, and then from there we, we pushed out. And it, the, the beauty thing is with, with the brief uh, that, that, is, that, I can, that I know for a fact of why it's successful is so we finish a, a mission, whether it went amazing or it went poorly, uh, at the end of the day, we knew if someone said, how did you know you were going to be successful? And we literally say, well, I'm going to do the brief. I'm going to execute the brief. Everything's right there. We everybody's lined. Everybody knows what we're going to do, and it'll be successful. Yeah, and but, to, but I mean, and, that and that's that's all great. But I mean, I I'm not a seal, but I know that stuff doesn't happen according to plan. Ah, great point. So we uh, so we call it contingencies, and we plan for them, and we have a database uh, that is developed during the deployment cycle on training missions, and then it's kind of passed around to all of the teams. We build a lessons learned. And so the last section of our brief is our contingencies. And they can be three, four, five pages long of Excel points, basically, you know, and a, and a PowerPoint deck, because that's what we used at the time. Yeah. And it would literally be, all right, so if we take a, a contact, here's what we're going to do. All right, if the helicopters can't get in, here's what we're going to do. Hey, here's a no communication plan if our radios go down. Here's this. So everybody knew the contingencies that might occur and how we're going to execute a plan around them. So it, it allowed for very quick thinking because it's it's much easier to plan, you know, in a nice air conditioned space or a tent, yeah. than it, than it is in the middle of a firefight. So we were always always constantly ready and had a plan for pretty much anything that would occur, which then would rotate back into operating procedures of how we're going to react during contingencies. Wow, wow, that's amazing. So I know that you have you talked about these plans and you talked about the briefings and you talked about uh, contingencies. 
But you also shared with me in other conversations that you've got this rubric that the military uses, the plan, brief, execute, debrief, and win. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, share with me a little about Certainly. how that's used, why that's used, and, and also with business where that rubric finds, um, finds it applicable? Okay. So uh, within the military, it's – uh, plan, brief, execute, debrief. And what that really means is, so we, we sit down and we plan a mission. Um, now, in the military, we use a reference called SMEAC, uh, which we have changed for corporate America to tailor it more to them. But SMEAC just means situation, mission objective, execution, administration, logistics, and then communications. Um, and so that that's basically the standard of what a brief is going to look like or a presentation will look like for us. It'll be every time it'll be in that order. Everybody knows what to expect at which point. Uh, it just creates some continuity amongst amongst the military, really. Um, so next we brief, and you know we, we discussed why a brief is so important for in our in my world. Uh, it basically is what creates the alignment, but it also is what tells everybody we're going from planning to executing. It's what gets uh, individual accountability. That's make sure make sure everybody knows their job. And uh, you know, honestly, I think one of the most important things is uh, so once we brief, we're a go. Like, that's it. There's no more discussion. There's no more, uh, you know, hey, I don't think this is going to work because of this. It's a, it, we're game on. It's time to go execute the job. Yeah. Um, so that occurs, you know, obviously we, we execute, which we execute our brief. That's, that's really it. Our execution is based around that brief. And, and, and of course, you know, I mean, two days ago was the 11-year uh, anniversary of Operation Red Wing with Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor. Yeah. Um, and so that's a great example of, Things did not go as planned. Um, what happened? So basically, uh, June 28th, uh, 2005, a four-man reconnaissance team went in to uh, northeast Afghanistan to do a, a reconnaissance. Uh, the short version is they were identified. Uh, they called for backup to launch what we call a quick reactionary force, a, a group of uh, military members that will go in to basically get them out uh safely and as quickly as possible. Uh, they had some issues there. Uh, the rest of the SEAL team went in uh, from SEAL Team 10, basically went in in two Chinooks. As they got into the valley, they lost their air support cover due to uh, a large amount of fog. And I don't know if it was lack of coordination or whatever, but basically the Chinooks outran the Apaches coming through the fog. So when they came in, they were basically sitting ducks. RPGs ended up hitting one of the helicopters. It crashed, and, uh, and all those members died. Uh, of the four-man reconnaissance team, uh, Marcus Luttrell was the uh, lone survivor, uh, hence the book, yeah. and basically was rescued by a local village and was hidden from Taliban for a few days until uh, the CIA basically uh, picked him up and, and got him back, and you know now he's alive. And so the, the short that's basically the, the very quick version of it, but it, what it was, you know, they planned this. Um, they had some mistakes along the way that they had contingencies for, yeah. but then some of the contingencies didn't, the planning they had didn't occur due to, you know, these massive outliers, one in a hundred uh, situations that occurred. Yeah. Uh, and so they flexed. They flexed as much as they could. They used their training. They did everything they could uh, yeah. to plan to get a, another force and to go get them. That other force comes in, and due to, again, a, yeah. a contingency, they end up getting shot down as well. I mean, uh, good notice, all the bodies were recovered. It was a huge military operation at that point to, to recover everybody. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for us as a community, it was probably the, still to this day, nope, there's, uh, it was the second largest loss of forces in, in SEAL team history. Both. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very familiar with that event, and I read uh, Mr. Luttrell's book, and uh, I, I'm saddened by that loss as well. 
Um, but as, as we're talking now about the contingencies, you know, and that's really my question, you know, shit hits the fan, things never end up the way that you plan and in spite of contingencies. And I think what I heard you say was, you know, you rely on your training for the rest to flex, uh, to, Correct. to deal with the rest that is not part of the contingency. Correct. And so, you know, to circle back to this presentation, um, the presentations, the conversations around the plan or, or the information that's being shared, those are critical, it sounds like. And if they're not done well, if they're not done clearly, if they're not done in a way that gets feedback, uh, positive feedback from the people you're presenting to, then, then uh, you know, it's a recipe for failure. Very, very much so, and that's uh, that is that is the truth. And so, I, I think some of the biggest issues I see in presentations that we discuss is it's complexity. You get a lot of very smart individuals who want to show how smart they are, and whether it's ego or or whatever, we've all seen it. Yeah. Um, they they drive they try to drive all these facts behind them on the wall and use big words and and anything else you could think of to to show the data and how good they are at it. And you know, they probably did an amazing job. But if, if it's too complex, it's not received very well. So if that, I have does to that happen, too much. Does that happen in the military too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Um, so they just expect you to understand their acronyms uh, and understand, you know, all details about detonators with C4 or whatever they're talking about. And if you don't know the details, then they just expect you to be what? Just out of the game? Um, so typically, uh, like, you know, if we start talking about going down, like, ex the explosives road, um, I was a communicator, so I knew radios. Uh, I did call for fire, so I would call it bombs on targets. Um, so, I mean, I knew about explosives, but, but if someone would say, hey, you know, we have a mark, whatever, uh, detonating trigger, I, I don't know what it is, but I would look at my, my demo guy and be like, are you good? <laughs> yep, okay, good. Um, and if not, I have absolutely no problem saying, hey, bro, I don't know what you're saying. Yeah. You Talk to me like I'm your four-year-old child. Yeah. Uh, and so... So yeah, because, then, of, because know, of that, I, so yeah. then, then they say, you say, talk to me like I'm your four year old child. And that's the biggest fear I think people have as an audience is raising their hand in a presentation and saying, excuse me, I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. And I see too many presentations at conferences where the audience is just dying because it's either a terribly boring presentation. It's not interactive or worse. The presenter is speaking and no one's really understanding these kind of details because the presenter is speaking in a way that is, is really projecting their ego, projecting how much they think they know about something and trying to actually not make something clear to the audience, but actually make it more opaque uh, because they've got ulterior motives. Correct. And so I think the first rule is, uh, is know your audience. That is, to me, that is probably one of the key things. And, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not the smartest man in the world. Uh, or even close for that matter, as far as I'm concerned. But I know that when I speak to an audience, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I'll joke, but, you know, I don't use more than three syllable words because I would rather it be so simple for them to get it that they're not trying to think and process and define things. And I'm just saying, I'm just giving them everything they need where they don't have to think so they can think about what we're trying to actually accomplish rather than trying to define what I'm saying. Yeah, which is a, a big disconnect. Yes. And, and that disconnect, you know, going back to sort of the ego of the presenter, um, that's an issue, don't you think? Oh, very, very much so. And, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, it's, but that's one of those things you can't eat. I don't think you're really going to get over, uh, because that individual who probably has that ego, who feels this, this need, this necessity to use, you know, huge words like SAT, you know, SAT words, as I'll joke and say, <laughs> that, that individual honestly is, is probably never going to get over himself, uh, or, you know, themselves, regardless of, of what you tell them, um, and so I think that's, that's a huge problem. And I, I have seen it with a lot of speakers that, uh, very, very intellectually smart individuals, uh, very talented at what they do, but, uh, have a very difficult time speaking to people that aren't as smart as them. And it comes off, one is very arrogant, egotistical, but I think the, the worst part is it comes off as if that individual is talking down to me. And as a, as a human being, that just upsets me. Yeah. It, it, it makes me not want to listen to what they're saying, and it, I'm automatically almost disinterested from them from the get-go. And, and it's, you, but the problem is you can't tell them that because they don't want to hear it or they're definitely not going to believe you because they're so smart. All right. So how do, you, how do you train people to have that mindset when they're presenting or working with their teams? Um, so I think, I think part of it is, you know, it, it comes from training, and I think it comes because we start off with a script. Uh, so because of that, you know, we have the, the, let's call it the level of, of words that we use, and they're not, you know, huge words. Uh, we also, you know, from the beginning we preach, you never use an acronym, because there's always going to be someone that doesn't understand it. Except uh, so, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. I think everybody gets that one, yeah. So, um... So that, that, that's one of our big ones is, is we, uh, we very much do not use, uh, if we do use an acronym, you know, we'll basically tell them exactly what it means and then, you know, or as we say in the military, what a whiskey tango foxtrot. Um, but for the most part, we try not to use them because, uh, you, know, you know, and I think I learned this more on the outside than I did in the military, ironically. Every company has, uh, uh, they call them lexicons, but, you know, a, a list of technical jargon they use yeah. on a daily basis and... We walk into a lot of organizations, and it could be two IT companies, and they say the same thing completely differently. And, you know, I'm not an IT guy, and I'll just sit there and stare at them. Like, I have no idea what you just said to me. Um, yeah. But it, it works both ways. If I was to use military, uh, you know, words and verbiage, it would, be the, it would be received the same way. So we basically, it's one of those things that uh, we prep a lot. Like, uh, the company I work for now, when we get on stage and give a keynote or a seminar, uh, you know, it's rehearsed. There's stages of qualification before you get on stage, and you are graded very, very hard. Uh, so, for me, but part of me getting on stage is I've had all of that beaten out of me, so to speak. I've yeah. been graded so many times yeah. about uh, the way I speak, how I present myself, where my body's facing, and hey, you got off script here. We don't think you're ready to get off script yet, uh, wow. just because. Uh, I mean, it's. But, I mean, the company's been around 20 years doing this, so it's. So There's a lot so of you, a lot know, of professionals, the, a lot of yeah. It's when it's, you say the company, so I think let's pivot now. And so tell okay. us now a little bit about your work with Afterburner and okay. how you help organizations level up their game. Okay, so uh, so at Afterburner, uh, you know, the company started out. We actually twenty years a couple weeks ago we hit twenty years, um, and so they started off doing what what they used to joke and refer to as what they call show up and throw up. They stand up on stage, give a keynote or seminar, and then they're basically gone. Uh, this evolved into more of a consulting uh, pers- uh, consulting side, kind of like what Covey does and everything else, where we get into the leadership and projects. And so we'll get up. Uh, we still do the keynotes, and, and but we, we very much customize for the, the organization that we're working with. And so the goal is, 
we teach that the plan brief execute debrief model. Uh, you know, with whether it's a keynote or a seminar or one of our other things, or the you know purely embedded consulting. Uh, and so, but the typical way most organizations see us uh, initially is on stage. And so, for us to be able to teach an audience of like the Prezi that that you built for us for uh, for Lips and I back in December, um, we gave that to 1,400 people in, in January. So we had to speak to an audience of 1,400 people. In this case, they were actual it was Remax of Texas. So we're talking 1,400 real estate agents yeah. and how our our planning methodology and our military uh, methods work for them. So it was a matter of uh, you know through rehearsal and, and understanding the organization that you're working with, uh, how do we relay that message to them in their world by using their own examples that we have done through discovery and interviews. Yeah. Uh, and so, so literally, you know, we rehearsed this, I don't know how many times it was a lot, uh, prior to getting on stage. And that rehearsal was, was with feedback. You had like a crew sitting in front of you, uh, firing away at you with do this, do that, don't say that or, or what? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, once we had the script development and done, then, uh, both Lips and I actually had to go to corporate, uh, in Atlanta. He's from San Diego. I live in, I live in Florida now, uh, just south of Orlando. And so we went up there and we presented in front of our headquarters staff, which is all prior military and our client advisors sales team. Uh, and so we ran through it the first time and we're talking an hour. So we ran through it the first time and they just took notes. Yeah. Uh, they basically debriefed us on how it went certain things to change. We took 15 minutes to to get ourselves back, and we did it again. Yeah. This time, we were graded on the changes. Great. That, w- that went well, and then they said, okay, you're good. Now do it again. So we went back for the third time, and they do uh, interruptions, and they will, they'll hit you at certain points. Um, hmm. You know, stand up, make noise, move chairs, interject jokes at you. Huh. Uh, but it's a test. It's to validate that that you know the script enough. You can get off. You can stay on, and you're going to push through no matter what. And so I'll actually tell you a really funny story. That yeah, uh, sure. So we we were on the road with our CEO, um, and one of our individuals that was just hired and was just qualified on what we call uh, Eastern Four Hundred One. It's a uh, task saturation story we tell, and so there's usually videos that go with it and everything else. So we're in a very nice restaurant. And uh, Murph, our CEO, looks over at one of the individuals and says, hey, uh, so are you ready to do 401 tomorrow? You know, on stage with him. And, and the guy's like, yeah, I'm ready, Murph. He goes, okay, stand on your chair right now and do it. Whoa. So in the middle of a high-end restaurant, this individual had to stand on his chair and present East, the Eastern 401, which is about 13 minutes of speaking yeah. in, a, in a restaurant full of random people. And that, that was his task. Random people who were trying to have other conversations and eat their dinner? Correct. And so, t- go on, what happened? So he went through it, you know, had a little hiccup here and there, but never stopped. And that was the key, is that no matter what, you always continue, because the audience doesn't know what you're going to say. So you may have a slip-up, but no one's going to know as long as you keep pushing forward. Um, so, you know, he got through it, had a few hiccups. Uh, we debriefed him at the table, and then he was uh, qualified to do it. But, yeah, I mean, it was... It was comical, but that's uh, that's just some of those uh, obstacles that we have to get over within our organization. But it's also what primes us to be so so good on stage and so uh, capable of flexing if, yeah. if something occurs. Yeah, awesome. That whole flexing concept is something you know for our, our second part conversation with you because I'm fascinated by it. But I want to wrap up now, um, really with. Uh, last question, just, you know, tell me a little bit about how Afterburner 
helps organizations level up their game. I know you described uh, Remax in, in uh, Chicago, I think. But tell me a little bit about how, not just through this presentation that you deliver to this group, but just through the services that you guys provide. Oh, so, so the big thing to know is that, you know, we're all educated. Most of us have MBAs. Um, and so we're, we are actual true consultants as well. So our goal is to go in, create a strategic alignment with the, with the executives and C-suite of an organization, and then drive that strategy down. Uh, and we'll do their operational campaign planning down to tactical planning for projects. Uh, you know, we've done compensation, IT work. Uh, but, but the goal is to use a very simple process that's iterative uh, that works at planning for your, 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 your five-year strategic plan that also plans to that eight-week plan to, you know, build a compensation plan for HR. Um, and so we, we drive it there, and we, much like the military, we're constantly talking about what the mission objective is and, uh, and constantly talking about the why. Why is this mission objective? Why is this tactical, you know, eight-week eight week project? How does that fit into the strategy of your organization? Uh, and this drives an individual accountability within, within a, a, a company as well as, more importantly, it tells them why they're there, why they're doing what they're doing, and it empowers them, creates the emotional bond, the emotional experience within the organization, uh, which will then push them to drive the alignment. And one of the examples that we constantly use is, you know, and I'm sure you have it, you have it too, Greg, you know, you get 150 emails a day, or you have 20 meetings, but you can only make 12 of them? Well, how do you pick which eight you're going to throw away? And so the goal is by creating that strategic alignment within an organization, you know, that, uh, that junior person, that junior manager doesn't have to go ask a director, hey, which eight of these can I not do? They won't have to because they know exactly what they have to accomplish. They know exactly, exactly, exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it, yeah. which of those 12 fit into the strategic goals of the organization and say, these are the ones that I can make. Um, so it creates time saving and everything else. Uh, and so we've done, I think at this point, 80% of the Fortune 50 companies. Wow. So, I mean, we, we have, you know, we've been around a while and it, it, it works. I mean, we've done a bunch of case studies and the, the process works. Uh, we have a great board of directors uh, by a guy named Don Sol at uh, MIT, who is one of the senior most uh, strategy development guys uh, in the U.S. that I know of. Um, so we're all about creating that alignment within a, within a company uh, using a very simple process that works at every single level. I think that's, that's the key is uh, – it doesn't matter who you are. You, you know how to plan. You know how to debrief. And debriefing is something most companies don't do as well as briefing. Uh, and so by debriefing, you're able to basically learn from the good or the bad you did uh, yeah. in a structured way, create what we call lessons learned that you then use for future planning to say, uh, it, like in the military concept, it's, hey, I know that if we hit this village in Afghanistan, there's always Taliban there. Okay, great. Now let's plan for that instead of walking into an ambush. Yeah. And so it basically allows us to have to have a plan uh, to have, you know, something basically we know certain things are going to happen. So let's plan for them. And it's also how we develop our contingencies. It's the, oh, my gosh, things went horribly wrong or or we did really well here. Well, let's capture that knowledge so we can pass it on to us and pass it on to other teams. Yeah. So it allows for the team, the organization, the community or the company to basically accelerate their learning and, and basically drive success home. And that's the piece I think that's hugely missing in organizations, fortune, whatever, you know, 5,000 down, is that debrief. Correct. You know, the emphasis on lessons learned and taking the time to fix what's broken. Correct, very much so. We, I have yet to come to an organization, maybe one or two, and I've worked with 40 different companies this year um, that have, 
said they debriefed. Actually debriefed, not just said they did. Yeah. Uh, so two out of 40, I mean, that's, yeah, the odds are not in corporate America's favor uh, in terms that they do it. It's probably one of the biggest, uh, biggest selling points that we have, and it's one of the biggest motivators that they see, one of the things that make them successful. And we've had, we literally had uh, a company called Mannheim, which is a massive auto auction, basically, company. And uh, we're talking the headquarters does something like 12,000 cars a week just to give a, a, a quantity. And just by us working with them, building out a, a restructuring plan and then debriefing every single day what they're going to do, we drove up their ability to move cars on a lot, like 61%, which I don't know what the capital uh, return investment was to that. but And, and that, but was because, it, that was because of the aha moment that happened correct. during the debrief. Correct. And that's... I mean, I, I can't. I can't talk highly enough about debriefing. It's honestly debriefing is what has probably saved many people's lives in the military. Uh, mm-hmm. Being able to get, gather those lessons learned to know I should have went left when I went right. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I can't stress how important it is. Well, Aaron, I want to thank you for your wisdom, your insight, your experience, but mostly, I want to thank you for your service to our great country. Uh, you're, I appreciate you're that. awesome. I really appreciate the opportunity to. Uh, to debrief with you here on this podcast. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, Greg. I'm super excited. It was, it was a really good time. Awesome. Speak soon. <laughs>